This episode is brought to you by Avalanche, the layer one that is blazingly fast, low cost, and eco-friendly. You'll hear more about Avalanche later in the show. All right, we got a big app. Look at this. Mm-hmm. I've been prepping. All right, we got one cup of coffee. We got a second coffee. Jesus Christ. We got ice. We got my sparkling water. So we are ready for a big episode here. Let's go. <laughs> We did not for, for the we did not coordinate. We're not we for not. everyone listening. We we do not coordinate on what we're wearing, right? We still don't have Empire merch, although maybe we should at some point. But today we're wearing uh, some some pretty old uh, grandpa sweaters, man. So I, know, I got a haircut and I've got this sweater on. I feel like I'm looking like a little too dapper here. So. <laughs> hey, man. Well, you know, it's a big week, a lot to cover. Uh, I'm actually excited now to go on video. I know last last week I was MIA, but uh, I'm glad to be back. We are going to be chatting about a uh, big chat on tokenomics today. Uh, if you guys missed last week's episode on the Curve Wars, I would uh, I'd maybe go recommend you listen to that uh, before this one. Um, I think first we'll start off with a quick market update, if that sounds good with you. Then we'll spend a little bit of time on, uh, actually probably a lot of time on Andre's projects. Uh, Andre being, uh, oh, we'll talk about who Andre is later, but Yearn and VE3 of 3. Um, then obviously you guys know, we love to talk about the L ones. There's some interesting L one stuff happening, then NFTs, then got to break down some of the coin, ba- uh, the Coinbase acquisition that happened. And of course, Citadel and paradigm coming together a little bit, pretty interesting to see, um, good app ahead before we get into the app, big permissionless shout out. If you are listening to this on Friday, you are lucky. You're lucky. January 14th, if you're listening to this the day it came out, go get your ticket. Tickets go up tomorrow. Uh, if you are listening on January 15th or later, you're not so lucky. I'm sorry. But yeah, today, 732 bucks. Tomorrow, 841 bucks. Remember, every two weeks, tickets go up 15%. We should be pricing these in ETH or SOL terms or Bitcoin terms. You know, there is there is a mental <laughs> frame. No, 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 no. I mean, have no, 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 it's true. Are, it's true. It's, it's true. true. Like, we, we are okay paying gas fees and and so and so I, I think your mental model when you're purchasing with crypto is way different right like like you know paying like ten dollars for something it, it sometimes seems absurd right but when you think about like our consumer behavior and habits and purchasing behavior in crypto is is vastly different at least in my life and i i think it's i've talked to other people that feel the same way so you should start pricing now tickets are in 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 Bitcoin, ETH, and soul terms. Uh, I think that I would think be better right. for, for selling out. I mean, we're going to sell out no matter what. I'm really excited to go. I'm actually planning my trip there um, now. And so, um, but yeah, we should price it in Bitcoin terms or crypto terms. I think you're right. All right. So as Santi said, uh, tickets right now are 0.22 ETH. Go get your ticket right now. Um, but you're, I mean, you're totally right, right? People want to spend like, if I saw 10,000 bucks for an NFT, I'm like 10,000 bucks. But if it's like, oh, it's three ETH. All right, cool. Toss toss a couple of uh, casino chips there. Anyways, market update, Santi. Crypto market cap has dropped from nearly $3 trillion market cap in mid-November to as low as $1.85 trillion. The market's obviously recovered a bit, right? We're up to nearly like, I think it's like 2, 2.1, 2.2 but still feels like there's a lot of uncertainty. And there's obviously a whole bunch of reasons for this, right? Some of the macro things, it's, you know, December's weak jobs report and the Fed's decision to kind of reduce the rate of asset purchases as well as increase interest rates. Obviously a big liquidation event that happened on January 5th, liqu- uh, liquidations across exchanges wiped out about $800 million off the market. I think there are two big numbers to look at here. Uh, One is the CPI print and two is open interest. So on CPI, 
the, the, the quick story here is yesterday CPI came out, showed a seven handle, uh, right? 7% year over year inflation, highest in 40 years. Bitcoin jumped 3%, outperforming equities on the day. Good branding. Uh, this is just, I mean, my take is just, it's great branding for the store value use case, CPI up, Bitcoin up. What, what are your thoughts here? Yeah, well, first of all, I mean, it's, it's uh, as you said, um, inflation um, is is been front and center since Q4. Um, the, the, the way I've been thinking about it, okay, is like, do you believe in this transitory inflation phase? Um, there are two things that cause inflation. One is obviously a supply shock. In COVID, there's just been a bottleneck and, 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 and a lot of congestion in supply chain. So what does that do, right? That naturally increases. If you think about the supply and demand curve, right? Um, that has led to an increase in a lot of prices across the board raw materials, you, you look at shipping containers, there's a lot of backlog because, you know, things take, are slowing down. So everything's coming grinding to a halt. Now, if you believe that Omicron is sort of like a, a, a much more milder version of the original variant, then do you see a path where that supply shock goes away later this year? And then you you, you catch, infl- you, you sort of tame down inflation. So a lot of the commentary that I've been listening to is they believe that, look, inflation is going to come down, it sort of reaches peak. Uh, and things are going to subside. But there is still the other component of what causes inflation, which is a demand shock. And so that's obviously been what is more relevant for crypto, which is this idea of a store value. You know, obviously with money printing comes, you know, a, a natural rise in prices. Uh, and, and I think that is something that uh, if you when I was listening to uh, Powell just uh, in his congressional kind of hearing, what was interesting was um, a lot of I think the commentary coming out of that is. How are you really going to wane off of these uh, unhealthy, I think he used the word unhealthy debt levels. Uh, I think he's sort of come to terms that, look, we all know, right? I mean, you look at the the deficit that the government is running is not sustainable. Um, the question is how unsustainable that is. And that has always been the case for a, a, a digital asset store value like Bitcoin. Um, and so, yeah, you know, it, I, I think it's pretty positive, as you said, that you see Bitcoin uh, rally. I mean, to be fair, though, I think, there tends to be a lot of pricing behavior and in anticipation of these events. And as we tend to, if you look at open interest and you look at, you know, how crypto markets behave coming, coming into this meeting, there's a lot of anticipation. I think it's always sort of like uh, you could argue that the markets had over, um, you know, had declined uh, and had, you know, come down quite a bit. And then it was just sort of a relief rally, but you know, who knows uh, if we're back in bull market territory. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah, totally. I mean, the the I'm not. Let's not get into this. Uh, there's this one post because I'm not sure if you've read it, so we won't talk about it. But the original bull case for for crypto for for Bitcoin was that ever growing government debt would lead to an inflationary devaluation of the dollar, right? But what's actually happened is that higher government debt has been correlated to actually lower inflation over the years. And there's this guy uh, Alfonso Picatello who has a great explainer on why some of these deflationary forces like high debt and low birth rates and technological disruption has actually counterintuitively been bullish for Bitcoin. So we'll link that in the show notes. Um, Santa, you mentioned open interest. I think this is the other metric to look at here. For those who don't look at open interest, this is kind of a a metric that can provide some insight into market sentiment, uh, open uh, open interest in crypto futures, right? So kind of a rapid increased uh, in open interest is very uh, can kind of be seen as very greed uh, heavy, but kind of moderate and slow growth of open interest is usually a return to bullish sentiment. Uh, according to the exchange data site ViewBase, open interest on Bitcoin has increased 1.7 percent, while interest in ETH has increased 1.2 percent. Um, 
And yeah, after the recent liquidations, this kind of moderate increase, my take is that it shows some level of strength and confidence returning to the market. Mm-hmm. Same view, different view? Um, yeah, well, I, I think um, for the last couple of weeks, what has been interesting, so w- w- when there is liquidations happening, you sort of wipe out a lot of the leverage, right, that is in the system. And, and as we know, you look at, I look at Bybit funding rates, because to me, that's the retail sentiment. And the crypto continues to be a very retail heavy market. And so to me, that's um, when I look at funding rates, especially in Bybit and some of these platforms, uh, it's basically how much you're being paid to go long or short a particular asset. And once you go above a certain level, 0. 0.1, 0. 0.15, 0.25% per day, to me, that sounds like, you know, things are overheated or or conversely, like just um, on both ways, long or short. And so you always look at that as a as a proxy of how much leverage is in the system. And you know, the last year you sort of saw these episodic events where a funding rate sort of almost systematically, if funding rate hits like you know a certain level, you would always be like, all right, it's going to be a matter of days until you have these cascading liquidations, right? Because it doesn't take much to wipe out a lot of these positions. Mind you, a lot of these folks are going 10x, 100x leverage on assets that you should, <laughs> with a lot of volatility, right? Uh, what has been interesting as of late is that. Um, it has been sort of tamed in terms of this open interest and these funding rates. And so it sort of puts into question, what is the overall sentiment of crypto markets? Because going into the year, you know, there's no surprise, right? A lot of funds are open-ended, so they raise capital and they deploy. Uh, Jeff Dorman, I think, is an interesting observation. The first couple of weeks of the month tend to be really strong for, for crypto across the board, right? Because funds receive capital and they can start deploying and buying into these assets. Um, and so it, it has been interesting that, uh, you know, the markets have sort of stabilized across a certain range. Like I think there was a lot of resistance in ETH hitting 3,000, Bitcoin 40,000, 41,000 sort of defended that well, but um, open interest hasn't gone up as much. And so it sort of puts into question, I think to me, it feels like, you know, folks are still jittery um, and and that's going to probably continue to persist. Uh, you know, there's a lot of macro noise. And so... You know, I think this are, this is all near term stuff, uh, you know, and I'm not an expert on this stuff, but I think funding rates really do offer a view into how the market into market psychology. Yeah. yeah. Let's get into the meat of things, Santi. I think this episode, we need to focus on kind of this rebirth of tokenomics for context here. The last couple of years, the strategy was basically launch a token, right? Get the token out the door, figure it out later. And I think we are just starting to enter the, the figure it out later phase right now that a lot of the it, it kind of feels like a lot of the froth has been sucked out over the last maybe month or two things are maybe becoming a little bit less speculative though there's obviously a big counter argument to that and it's kind of becoming how can i not just let me get this token out the door but now it's how can i tweak governance to actually accrue value to the token uh improve value of the platform and most importantly how to incentivize the users to do both of those things. And that's kind of coming back into vogue after I feel like not being as popular over the last couple of years. So last week we talked a lot about the curve wars. This week we're going to be talking about Yearn. Uh, two main characters that you have to know here. One is Andre. Andre spearheaded Yearn Finance, which has over a billion dollar market cap right now. Uh, Keeper Network. Uh, and he's, he's just been, I mean, he's arguably one of the best devs in the space, most influential, most impactful devs in the space. And then Daniel Sesta uh, launched Abracadabra. Uh, Spell, Popsicle Finance, Wonderland Finance, which is time, a whole bunch of other great DeFi projects. So let's start with Yearn, and then we'll get to Andre and Daniel's new project on Phantom. So with Yearn, right, for those who don't know, Yearn is kind of this aggregator or sort of like suite of products in DeFi that provides 
lending aggregation, yield gen, uh, insurance on ETH. Um, instead of me explaining the backstory of Yearn and things like that, though, Santi, I mean, you were, you were in the design process, right? You were there since the initial mm-hmm. mint. Can you kind of just mm-hmm. give us an overview on Yearn, like the mm-hmm. initial mm-hmm. model and, and what you think is important before jumping into these updated tokenomics? Yeah, so for context, Yearn was really um, made a big splash because it was the first protocol that issued all of its supply to liquidity farmers. Um, and that sort of was the first iteration of this sort of new concept of you provide liquidity to your protocol, you get a token back, which is a governance token. And as you said, you know, the idea behind what would be governed in these systems was sort of predicated on, hey, you build a big community, you build liquidity, and then that allows you to, you know, he who controls sort of liquidity and community can do interesting things. Um, over time, it sort of increasingly felt a couple of things. Um, that you didn't have enough tokens to incentivize the team long-term to continue to develop, right? A lot of these devs are super talented. Yearn has probably one of the best teams out there. But, you know, other protocols started poaching these devs. And so it put it put into question, well, what is really the function of Yearn, of Wi-Fi, the token of, of Yearn, the ecosystem, the protocol? Um, and in that process, in talking to a lot of stakeholders, we decided to make an initial mint of increase the supply of Wi of Wi-Fi uh, by by good but a healthy margin to have ammunition to give these tokens to developers strategists mind you yearn is sort of a yield farming um, kind of a aggregator so they, it has these vaults which uh, makes it super easy for someone to deposit into that vault and and the strategist which are you know do a lot of the heavy lifting in in, in capturing yield right. Um, and so that was the first part, which felt, okay, let's mint, let's give it to the team and have some in reserve to, as you know, to, to have the ability to, you know, from a business development standpoint and just incentivize liquidity providers and just, you always need to have some tokens in reserve, as we've talked about in prior episodes, uh, as ammunition to incentivize people, right? Because it's a very competitive landscape out there. It's ruthless, kind of, you know, people, you know, one up each other on incentives. What is interesting now is in that initial mint proposal, my thinking was, well, you never really just want to hoard a token, right? There needs to be some functionality. If you look at the design space today, you have protocols like Maker that MKR serves as the backstop. If there is an insolvency in these protocols, mind you, because there's a default, there's liquidations that, you know, can't, there's a shortfall, right? Then that, if you're holding this token, then you are acting as the backstop for that, right? And and so that's what it makes sense, right? Uh, Avi has a similar mechanics and other protocols kind of have experimented around that and others just like uniswap is like look you could earn some of these fees but it's not sort of embedded and it's up for governance and so back to wi-fi i think now is super interesting how they've thought now in that second instantiation okay let's make wi-fi and the idea of what it serves in this ecosystem actually more productive and i think i don't know if you want to go into the specifics jason but i think it's very thoughtful around you know the idea of what do you you know as staking Wi-Fi, you have the ability to earn more Wi-Fi, uh, but you act as sort of like a backstop. And, and that makes sense, right? Because at the end of the day, you know, you want to have an insurance fund in case funds are lost. I mean, Wi-Fi has, urine has been hacked. Uh, I think their die vault was hacked. There's a minor shortfall, but still, you know, I think, again, it's this idea of giving more functionality to the token. What has been nice to see is that just as a last point of context, initially there was a lot of tension amongst certain the community where there was a camp that said, listen, Wi-Fi had a fixed supply 
and you shouldn't increase the supply. It's sort of sacrosanct. This is sort of more of a, of a Bitcoin scarcity gives value mindset. And another camp that said, listen, no one cares. Like you can have a fixed supply, but if, if at the end of the day, what you need is uh, what you need to kind of focus on is driving more value for users and having a sustainable protocol, right? It's super early. And so I think ultimately most of the community members decided, look, it's probably better to have to mint more Wi-Fi and make it in somewhere inflationary. Yeah. So let's get into what they've recently done, right? So late December, changed up the tokenomics. Um, Wi-Fi soared like, I don't know, 50, 100%. I forget the actual number. Um, so... There was a proposal a couple months ago that basically said, uh, we, 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 want the, we want to update the tokenomics. We want the community's input here. What should we do? I think there were like 200 different proposals here. And in late December, they decided to move forward with one specific update. So the big thing here is, I mean, there's a lot of different things we'll talk about, but Yearn has started massively buying back Wi-Fi for people who stake, right? And they're starting to revisit the tokenomics to move to this like fee distribution model to holders currently uh, looking at different models like uh, the VE curve and uh, the, you know, the X sushi models and, you know, Wi-Fi for people who don't know, like they're, they're making a hundred million dollar a year, a uh, hundred million bucks a year in fees from the vaults uh, that are not currently based on incentives or these dilutive tokens, right? They have a treasury right now of, I think over a hundred million plus just earning interest. They have over 5 billion TVL. Uh, the market cap's only, I think it's like 700, 800, 900 million right now. Yet they have one of the highest fees per TVL. Um, and they're also one of the only kind of truly 100% decentralized DeFi products. Um, and so let's talk about kind of what they're moving to, right? I think what's going to happen is that urine ends up shifting to this like VE. Um, and for those who missed the, cur uh, the Curve Wars episode last week, VE is a vote escrow model that I think you're going to start seeing pop up all over the place. Uh, so they'll end up shifting to this VE urine model where DAO treasuries will actually start accumulating Wi-Fi in the same way that DAO treasuries started accumulating uh, like CVX uh, and, and CRV uh, so that they actually end up getting a cut of this $100 million revenue and directly uh, and directing some of this like power, powerful votes uh, on the lock CRV assets. So I think um, what is, I mean, if, if we were to kind of zoom out, um, what is really interesting is two things. One it, it it sort of gives the token more life and reason to hold the token, right? You, my biggest issue with urine, and mind you, this is not just urine, but there are some tokens out there you just feel, well, what's really the purpose of having this? Um, okay, Xsushi came along and said, well, it's interesting, right? The, these protocols, some of them can accrue a lot of fees. If you're staking, then you can earn some of those fees. If you're provide, if you're doing... But my biggest object is that there tends to be some disconnect in, okay, a lot of these DeFi protocols, fine, you provide liquidity, you issue tokens to, to liquidity providers uh, in hopes that they might be adding value to this community over time, right? The problem is, the biggest thing that I've always felt is a lot of these guys are just mercenary. They're big operations that come in and farm and dump. Like they, you give someone the ability to dump, they will. They will capture, they will do some hedging and run delta neutral strategies, which means they will supply something like Bitcoin and ETH that they're long, or they'll just hedge that and be selling this governance token for yield, purely for yield. And I just think that that's a very expensive way to, uh, for, for, to, to go to market. Um, now, staking is interesting because, again, it can... Um, 
you have more skin in the game if you're staking, meaning you can earn some yield, fine, but you're on the hook. If this protocol goes down or there's some insolvency, you're again protecting users, right? If you're protecting users and you're putting users he- first, then I think like like every other bank, right? Then you you are in a more competitive position, right? There's still a lot of risk in, in DeFi. And so, you know, if if you stake Wi-Fi and, and you can cover some of the shortfall, if there's a shortfall, then that makes to me more sense, right? Um, and earning fees, um, by doing that also makes sense. Uh, so I think like ultimately yearn is, is not, will not be the first, but it's certainly going to probably set a standard into what we're already starting to see with Olympus and Faye, like protocol control value, protocol control liquidity, uh, which seems to me more like of sticky liquidity sources, sticky community, uh, which Community can be a very fluffy word if you give people tokens that they can sell immediately, like without escrows or without, you know, uh, any other incentive or reason to hold it. And so I think in this case, I think what you're going to see is probably a shift and realignment of people that really, truly want to be participating in this protocol and staking it and 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 governing. Um, you know, for instance, we in the Curve episode, I think... Um, Again, this narrative of protocols are going to compete for these governance votes. These governance votes are going to continue to have more and more power. Why? Because you're shifting from individual liquidity providers to how do you incentivize like protocol or protocol incentives is what we're starting to see here. And I think a lot of these new token redesigns are putting that front and center because ultimately that's really what you should be striving for, right? You know, how do you convince if you're JP Morgan, how do you convince another institution um, to, you know, to use you guys, right? I mean, this sort of classic business development. And this is just a testament of as this industry becomes more and more institutional, protocols really are the institutions here, right? And so you have to make sure that your token design factors and takes that into account. Yeah. Well, I think it's important to kind of look at like what actually happened here, right? So kind of like the four steps and then what actually this incentivizes and how this will fundamentally change a lot of the different protocols moving forward. Um, so, I mean, for like step one is kind of, you've got like X Wi-Fi and t- tell me if I'm wrong with any of this, right? Like you've got X Wi-Fi, you can stake in the X Wi-Fi vault earn ba- and where you're basically earning bought back Wi-Fi from the treasury. Kind of simple as that. Step two is you've got this like VE Wi-Fi, uh, which is the vote locked Wi-Fi. Uh, the more, the more you lock it up, the more you earn kind of these disproportionate rewards compared to those who lock for a shorter duration. You can obviously exit at any time, but you end up paying a penalty. Step three is you've got these vault gauges where you stake your your like your Y vault, I think it's called, in a gauge, earn Wi-Fi rewards, uh, and that gets boosted by how much of the VE Wi-Fi you have staked. Uh, and with that, you get to vote on which vault should actually get allocated rewards. Uh, and then the fourth thing is useful work, right? With the VE Wi-Fi holders, they are actually earning additional rewards by doing useful work. Uh, that you know that could be like configuring vault parameters, setting fees, providing insurance. So zooming out here, like what what does that actually do? What does this even mean? To me, what I'm reading is you're incentivizing long-term holders. You're incentivizing uh, people to buy the token who want governance, and you're incentivizing people to buy the token who actually provide value. This is powerful, right? Because now you're moving to a model where instead of people just buying tokens for very short term, all all of the incentives are moving towards we we want people who are incentivized to be long-term holders uh, who actually provide value to the thing and who maybe want a voting say. And what does that remind me of? It reminds me of uh, moving towards more of a company like uh, a model like companies have, right? Like we wouldn't ever want to give equity in Blockworks to just these like 
really, really short-term holders. We want to give equity in BlockWorks to people who are incentivized for the long term, who actually provide value, right? Who actually want like a seat at the table and want to uh, decide kind of these long-term decisions at BlockWorks. And so that's that's what it reads to me. But I'm curious what you think of that. No, I think you're absolutely right. My biggest criticism in a lot of these kind of token economic like token designs is that it will they will probably most of them be really expensive customer acquisition strategies and i always like to go back to like the first the og og of DeFi and 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 farming is synthetics and you know synthetics just got it really right where if you remember like if you were staking your your snx your rewards were escrowed and locked for a year and so what did that do in the first, in the initial days, you attracted a very strong, small, passionate community that was, I mean, that discord to this day is bumping. I mean, we, we call ourselves like the Spartans, right? And so, you know, it, it just, it, to me, that's, that's the healthy and more sustainable way of going to market. Right. And then, and then I was sort of, so synthetics kind of got that right. But you in this weird, very competitive DeFi ecosystem where protocols just feel that they they need to they need to have juicier rewards and liquidity mining programs and have the highest yield. And yeah, sure, it's sort of a vanity metric of oh, look at how much TVL I have, hundred million in twenty four hours. Well, who cares, right? Because people are going to move on to the next farm, and the next protocol has the best incentive. And so that to me, just at some point. I think we went through this healthy correction after DeFi summer where protocols were starting to think, okay, well, you know, things are quieter now. How do we actually think of creating more sustainable, which are still not sustainable to be fair, at least more sustainable strategies. And I think the protocols that have done that right, you know, Olympus, I think that did that right. Faye and protocol control value kind of set a new standard. And it's good to see that. I, I think we're still very early. Um, and, but I think you see curve moving this direction too, and convex, you see Wi-Fi kind of rethinking this and, uh, it's good to see that. And I think as we've said in prior episodes, the protocols that can adapt and actually have importantly, have the ability to change the token structure because some of these protocols can't sort of like embedded and you can't really modify this. will have a higher probability of, of surviving over the next five years and really come out as, you know, dominant forces in, in this DeFi ecosystem. Unfortunately, some of them are not going to survive because they 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 blew their load uh, and they just yeah. gave away all the tokens and they, you know. Yeah. Well, what, what do you mean by that? Why can't some people, why can't some protocols change the token economics? Well, I'll give you an example of that. If, if governance is kind of botched, like Wi-Fi agreeing and convincing the community to vote to mint more tokens was difficult. It was very difficult. Thankfully, the keys had not been burned. And so you had the ability to go back and the deployer contract of Yearn was able to mint more Wi-Fi, uh, right? And so if you remember, there was an initial proposal to burn the keys, meaning there would be, actually it passed and it didn't get implemented. We can got to talk about that later. But uh, there was a lot of focus around, I think the initial supply was 30,000 Wi-Fi and people kept looking at that number and they said, burn the keys, no one, the same within Bitcoin camp, no one can increase the supply. And so that had been the case. If you had actually burned the Wi-Fi, like the keys, right? You would have been able to mint more Wi-Fi and you wouldn't have been able to create all these different incentives that you see now being proposed. And so what, could you have migrated the token to create another Wi-Fi? Well, it's sort of like not ideal. Okay, it's possible, but still not ideal. And so that's what I mean by some protocols are a little bit more, it will, look, is it impossible? 
Probably not. At the end of the day, you know, you could probably migrate and create a new token and migrate the community, but uh, it's certainly more difficult. And so uh, that's what I mean by that. Yeah. All right, friends, quick break to share some exciting updates from Avalanche, one of the leading L1s. First, the Particle NFT sale powered by Avalanche. Particle has fractionalized high-end art into 10,000 NFTs, the first piece being Banksy's. Love is in the air. Check it out, particlecollection.com. Number two, an ILO, initial litigation offering, has started on Avalanche in partnership with Rival, Rival with a Y, a community fundraising platform for court cases. Really interesting use case there. Uh, number three, enterprise partnerships growing on Avalanche. Deloitte recently partnered with them to optimize logistics around natural disaster relief and claims payouts. MasterCard also tapped them to help accelerate crypto startups. Uh, number four, last but not least, I got an early look at a report from the Crypto Carbon Ratings Institute that shows the energy usage of various L1s. Avalanche came out very low in terms of total energy usage relative to other L1s. Thank you, Avalanche. Big thanks for sponsoring Empire. Now, let's get back to the show. All right, let's get into uh, VE3 of 3. So first off, VE3 of 3, big shout out to this guy on Twitter, Jack Nywald, um, who's been exploring this a lot. Really helped me out. I'd recommend you guys go follow him. Uh, with the curve wars heating up, it uh, only seems fitting that Andre is not only working on uh, Yearn, but also is rolling out a project that incorporates curves and Olympuses, uh, really innovative approaches to token design and incentive alignment. Uh, really early days, obviously. Thing hasn't even really gone live yet, but a lot of kind of early speculation looks like VE3 of 3 could kind of change DeFi forever. So you've got Andre, you've got Daniel Sesta. Uh, they've banded together to create this kind of new, secretive, highly anticipated project. So here's what we know so far. What does it do? Uh, how does it make money? Basically, it's a new exchange. It's kind of like an it's an AMM is what it looks to be, like Uniswap and Sushi and Trader Joe and all that kind of stuff. But instead of being controlled by liquidity providers like the the LPs like Uni and Sushi, uh, it is controlled by the protocols, right? So, I thought Jack laid out the the it's like really easy to understand like the four stages um, of crypto exchanges. So stage one. You have centralized exchanges uh, with centralized liquidity, right? Stage two, you've got decentralized exchanges with LPs. That's kind of what he calls mercenary liquidity. Stage three, you move into protocol-owned liquidity, where the protocols actually become the LPs. And stage four is VE3 of three, protocol-owned AMM, right? I can talk more about the actual tokenomics, what this thing really does, the staking mechanics, all that kind of stuff. But... High level thoughts. What, what what's your take on what Andre's working on? I don't know if you've talked to him yet, but uh, what are your thoughts when you read this? I have not talked to him yet, but I also find it quite fascinating. Uh, I think Andre's. Um, it's good to see Andre uh, kind of be more kind of centric on on token design. I think initially Wi Fi was like, look, I, I just don't care. I just want to give this away for free. But now I think it, this this to me feels like a different Andre that is much more focused on applying all the different learnings both that he's observed in the protocols that he's been a part of and or involved and also what else has been happening in the ecosystem. Um, and, you know, I, I think it is, uh, it is quite interesting, this protocol owned AMM. And again, it, it has a lot of the elements that I like, which is attracting long-term uh, more aligning the interest um, of, of liquidity providers in, into these AMMs and, 
uh, it's interesting how you're actually going to uh, be able to earn this token, right? Uh, a lot of times we're used to anyone can just uh, buy it to token or or just kind of, as we say, ape into this token or, or um, which was like Keeper was kind of like that. Uh, now this, this actually, to me, sounds like it's going to be very strategically handed out to the people that are, make the most sense here, which is protocols that have been uh, operating and running on Phantom, which is a network that he's been a big part of and supportive of over time. Yeah, you can't just buy the token, right? You can't just buy the token on the open no. market. It's going to be distributed to, this is my understanding at least, it's going to be distributed to the top 20 protocols mm-hmm. on Phantom by TVL, which yeah. makes it interesting, right? Because then yeah. the only way to get the upside here at least right now, if you th- if you think this is coming, you think that Andre's really good dev, you, you're excited about this. There's only two ways to really play this. It's like you buy the phantom, you buy a phantom, which is essentially buying the whole phantom ecosystem, um, and then you also or you start buying some of your favorite protocols. Uh, yeah, the top twenty like phantom protocols. Um, mm-hmm. Yeah, I mean it's interesting why because like okay, so back to the L1 kind of discussion that we were having in prior episodes. This might just catalyze an entire kind of phantom winter, if you will, um, where, you know, you have a much oh, more... phantom summer. Wouldn't this make phantom absolutely well, explode? Well, or is that the... Is that the... We're, we're in winter. We're in winter, I guess, in the northern hemisphere. But you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> this might catalyze a lot of interest in phantom um, in, in a very interesting way, right? Because Avalanche obviously had a huge ecosystem round near just which we'll talk about later in the episode, uh, just announced out today. Um, Solana obviously raised a big round from institutions, more VCs. This is just a totally different way of saying, listen, we're just going to airdrop this token, which is pretty novel and interesting. And and if you're excited about that, um, then come and build on Phantom and you might get a slice of it. I've seen a few protocols be now much, much more interested in saying, hey guys, maybe we should just deploy quickly on Phantom to get a piece of this and just pl- and ride it out. And so it's, I think it's a genius marketing and business development go-to-market strategy um, to, you know, bring more activity to the Phantom ecosystem um, and um, and align a lot of these protocols to use the AMM. Yeah. And if you look at this here, I mean, if you look at like uh, the TVL on ETH, right, 24 <laughs> yeah. hours, it's up 1%, Terra's up 5%, uh, Avalanche up 2%, Solana's up 2%, Phantom's up 19%. There you go. Right. You go. People, people are playing the airdrop or yeah, protocols. Exactly. Yeah. Playing the airdrop. yeah. Yeah, exactly. Um, I think there's one other one other interesting thing here, which is uh, the VE. Okay, so let me try to f- make sure I understand this. Basically, uh, you have VE, which is the vote escrow mechanics, kind of operate like convex and curve, right? Where you the vote escrow you lock for longer periods of time, that gives you higher rewards and a larger share in voting uh, and the governance of the protocol. You also have to lock and cancel your tokens, kind of like convex curve, whatever. Mm-hmm. The staking dilution mechanics, the you know three of three are kind of like Olympus DAOs, right? Where the protocol is worth a minimum of its treasury value. It trades at a premium to the treasury value, larger the premium, higher the API, tokens rebase over time, et cetera. Uh, here's, here's the kicker. You can't actually sell... You, so you can't sell most of the VE tokens. They're stuck in the wallet. Mm-hmm. But with this new protocol, the VE tokens become NFTs. What this means is that you can now sell your basically VE tokens on a... On the open market, you, so, so so suddenly you've created a secondary market for locked governance tokens, which is now a way to sell voting power. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I don't know. As opposed to like the non-transferable VE mechanics, tokenizing the lock position allows these locks to be traded on the secondary markets. I don't know. There, there's going to be some interesting things that come from this. What, what are your thoughts here? I actually quite like it. It reminds yeah. me a lot of Wineshare. You remember like um, Andre deployed this Wineshare model, which was yeah. Nexus. It was just a secondary market for Nexus Mutual, which is one of the largest, if not the largest insurance um, market. But it had a, it had you couldn't just buy cover and nexus. You had to have KYC. So a lot of people didn't want to do that, couldn't do that, and so you created these like NFTs that represented a particular cover for you know a particular protocol, and that was fascinating because it created better price discovery for. Uh, I mean, it, it, this will essentially, like any other secondary market, will create a pretty robust, healthy price discovery for for this asset token. Um, and or having a claim on on some of these tokens or fees, if you will. So I think it's a very clever way of doing it. Um, uh, along, I mean, we've always talked about NFTs are not just are not just digital art. They are contracts, and and they can represent so many things. Again, the, you can attach and append all kinds of data to these NFTs. And uh, and I'm super excited to see how this thing kind of behaves. Um, so I think it's one. Of, it, it is probably the first that I've seen. Uh, you can also imagine like this can be applied to so many other different protocols like, you know, you, you're staking your ETH uh, and you want to sell kind of like a stream of, of staking yield for the next 12 months. You commit to locking your ETH uh, with a validator and then you sell the NFT um, as a contract, like as a whatever, um, you know, uh, representing a claim, a discounted claim on, on future kind of staking rewards or, or feeds. Uh, I think it's pretty awesome. Like these, these are massive, massive derivative markets are massive in traditional finance, and NFTs are how you do this in, um, you know, in DeFi. If you have these governance, uh, the governance votes though, these like VE votes becoming uh, on going on the secondary market. I don't know. M Mike was uh, we were talking about the um, the the launch of like looks rare, the NFT thing, and we had, Mike and I ended up getting into a long chat about vi vampire attacks. And this is Mike's thing, not my thing. I got to give him credit. But he said vampire attacks are the, are the new activist investors, right? So in like, and, and when I think about, uh, we got to get Jeff Dorman on here to talk about this. But in old finance, right, like Bill Ackman steps in uh, in crypto. Uh, there isn't like this massive. I guess you're just starting to see like the rise of these quote unquote, almost like activist investors or like activist protocols. Yeah. So. Yeah. Look, I mean, one of the things that, uh, I think I always think about when we, when you actually are factoring in the possibility of governance attacks, um, and especially if you're borrowing tokens. So a, a lot of, a lot of what I think has been fairly nascent, not as explored, but one of those things that are like known unknowns, which is that worry me a little bit is the possibility of attacking these networks by capturing a lot of governance power and, and passing a proposal. And then, you know, that could be malicious to the network. Uh, in this case, simplistically, like if you acquire a lot of the, if you corner the market for these NFTs, could you acquire sufficient governance power and, or are there mechanisms in place to prevent that? Obviously you could run up the price and it becomes pretty expensive to do so. But, um, yeah, I think, um, a topic for future discussion, especially when we talk to Jeff and some of the other folks in the ecosystem. But yeah, I think I think uh, this year and going forward, the possibility, and I think we'll see more and more governance attacks as there's more value in these systems and the possibility to change certain parameters, fees, where you divert the fees, like, you know, could a protocol come in, vampire, type, corner the market for these NFTs, acquire a lot of staking power and then pass a proposal and divert fees to their protocol or liquidity to their protocol? Absolutely. It's going to happen. Yeah. So uh, it's going to be interesting to observe.
Yeah. If this works, I mean, it completely changes how protocols operate and changes the model of uh, governance and liquidity wars. So probably nothing. Yeah. <laughs> cool. Let's, uh, I think this is a good segue. I mean, we talked a lot about Phantom because Andre and Daniel are build, building this on Phantom. Uh, one interesting thing, I know you're very close with Kane is, uh, so I'm not sure how much you can share here is Kane, uh, I'm Kane tweeted out last night. I'm starting to come around to the idea of deploying the uh, synthetics exchange contracts to multiple L1s. This is purely based on a concept that emerged recently for synths to act as fast withdrawal bridges across networks. And then he's got a whole thread on it. So Mm-hmm. This is in contrast with Kane's take like a month ago, talk, where, where it was very, very ETH heavy, very like ride or die ETH. And now he's saying, you know, might deploy to multiple L1s. Uh, is Kane coming around to a multi chain world? Well, I haven't spoken to him since that tweet, um, but it, it, it certainly would appear that it is an interesting shift in, in, in his tone. And his willingness to explore other L1s. I mean, he's been very focused on optimism as an, as an L2, but this particular L1s. Um, you know, if you look over time, he's he, he. I think he's first and foremost one of the one of the strongest builders in the space. He's been around for for a while, and he's been he he's gone through and and acknowledged the fact that as an ETH a community, we need to be more practical and focused on this idea that look, other L ones are kind of are coming and users are, are going there, and it's a threat. I don't think of it as a threat. I never. I, I I'm more of the mentality that this is win win. Uh, like the success of Solana is not mutual. Doesn't detract necessarily from Ethereum, if you know what I mean. Now he he was more of the camp that look, it does. Um, and in the multi coin episode, there's obviously perhaps more of a view that. There may be a winner take all for at least for winner take all for specific use cases, which I'm, you know, I sort of have different views there. But uh, yeah, I think this is a different cane. I think it's more practical cane. And people need to remember look, I mean, cane ultimately, you know, yeah, he's sort of a benevolent dictator of the synthetics ecosystem. But at the end of the day, the synthetics, these protocols are governed by a community. And, you know, I, I, I don't know what's going on in his brain, but faced with the possibility of saying, do I want another protocol to eat my lunch? Because other DeFi protocols that are based in Ethereum L1 have been much, much more practical and and, and deployed in other L1s. And so, you know, ultimately you look at that and you say, yeah, I mean, I'm at a disadvantage if I'm, if I'm just going to be ETH-centric. And so I think that's where that's coming from. Yeah, totally. Jumping over to another... Uh another L1 Terra, right? Doquan mm-hmm. tweets out this thing yesterday morning, mm-hmm. lfg.org redacted coming soon. Mm-hmm. A lot of hype in the ecosystem right now over redacted as people are referring to it. Uh, you hit the website. This is what it looks like. It's literally just redacted coming soon. Um, there is speculation here, Santi. There is speculation that Terraform Labs has raised $2 billion for MasterCard in exchange for discounted Luna, locked for three to four mm. years with all proceeds going towards buying Bitcoin as a reserve asset for UST. Mm. I think that's a little far-fetched. I don't think MasterCard came in and scooped up $2 billion here. Uh, there's also just kind of a rumor that Terra raised, maybe it's more like a billion dollars. Maybe it's not from MasterCard. Maybe it's just mm-hmm. from some big mm-hmm. investors. Uh, they probably got in at like a 20 or 30 or 40% discount to the Luna price mm-hmm. when it was mm-hmm. trading at maybe like 50, 60, 70 bucks or 65 bucks. So what's the scoop? Give us the alpha, sir. 
I, I, I cannot leak Alpha here because I'm actually not in the loop, uh, even though I, I do like Terra. Uh, it, that logo, sh blurred logo, sure looks a lot like uh, MasterCard. Um, but, you know, Doe's a playful guy, and so I'm sure he's... I, I, I'm not confirmed. But uh, it would make a lot of sense. I mean, if this were true... Let's see. Let's just, let's just toy with the idea, if it were true. Well, why would MasterCard want to do this, right? Well, let's, let, let, let's ex explore this idea and just... Well, Terra has been pretty interesting from an e-commerce perspective. It has Chai, the wallet, which competes against Cacao Pay and, and Ali, similar to Alipay, but Cacao Pay and all these different things, right? And so it's been a pretty interesting retail uh, app that has been used for e-commerce as a primary onboarding mechanism for then Anchor and, and, and Mirror and a lot of these, broadly the Terra ecosystem, right? But you need to have a killer app. In this case, it's a wallet that you're going to be using for e-commerce that provides incentives for people that instead of paying with your cacao pay or whatever card you use chai which is a wallet of terra to to use why because it will give you incentives to do so meaning luna right or discounts or whatever in, in some shape way, way shape or form the same way that a credit card when you swipe gives you rewards right well the credit card that gives you the highest rewards jason is probably the one that you're going to use right and so in this case, maybe MasterCard is feeling a competitive disadvantage with younger cohorts, younger generations, or geographically, right, in, in Korea and some of these other markets. And would it make sense for them to report with someone like Luna? Probably. I mean, why not, right? I mean, MasterCard's competing against, you know, Visa, which is about a punk. I don't know what their strategy is. But again, I, I mean, I think this is the super bullish case for what, for, for what really leads to, we talk about in an episode with Stani, how can we get to a trillion dollars in, in TBL? Uh, a DeFi. I think it takes a big, big player like this to say, well, I probably want to go first because they're just, the users are here. The younger generations are here and in order to survive and stay relevant and, and continue to grow. If you look at their core business, like Visa and Musk are not, not particularly high growth companies, right? And so how do you reinvent yourself in the next 20, 30 years? Well, you enter the space. And so if you come to that conclusion, you say, okay, probably makes sense to partner someone like Luna who's been around, right? And has a pretty interesting ecosystem hypothetically speaking yeah yeah so here's the counter though what what we saw michael saylor do with microstrategy is like he's turning microstrategy into a hedge fund right where the hedge fund uh, buys bitcoin yes although i think you're missing a piece here which is he reinvented microstrategy with web 2 to web 2 web 1 to web 2 right and then he also he also has been very early in identifying trends and so he pivot a lot of the business a lot of the business model microstudies evolved over the years and he it's a data business model and so he went heavily to mobile and i think what he sees now is like look blockchains are data rich i mean it's a perfect perfect ecosystem industry to go mine this data and provide valuable insights for people now of course a lot of the balance sheet right now microstrategy is sort of like proxy for bitcoin exposure the same with like grayscale products are <laughs> with maybe an equity kicker of him reinventing the business but i think that if I'm thinking of why sailors gone so heavily into this space is to totally reinvent the business into being the first and one of the best data providers in, in web three. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, you know, I guess, I guess, yeah, I think you're right with chai. I mean, it's like if chai, if you can think of chai as like closing this like proverbial money loop for Luna in South Korea, MasterCard closes the money loop for the rest of the world. Um, uh, we'll see. We'll see. Okay, so like the last thing I'll say is we should link here to two things. One, there is some great ads from Visa when it was getting started. 
like absolutely amazing. And I tweeted about this way, way back. It's actually quite interesting to go back and remind you 20 years ago, the idea of using a debit card, the idea of using a credit card was like orthodox. It was, it was like people use traveler checks and cash and all this stuff. And, and it's really interesting to see how far we've come because now most people don't carry cash. Most people think of using their credit card and it's, you know, we just got to remind ourselves that like, it was not too long ago where people were dismissive of credit cards and the idea of traveling with a plastic that would somehow represent and abstract the cumbersome and actually risky proposition of carrying cash or notes or whatever, you know, I don't think it's far-fetched. It'll be interesting, but I think I, I, I do, I will say, I think e-commerce payments, if you look at Shopify, Visa, these guys are poking around. I don't think it, unlike 2017, where it was a lot of announcements like New York, Long Island tea or whatever, like people just announcing they're going to enter block. I think this is substantiated. It's real. They've had two cycles now to think about their strategy. And look, maybe in 2017, here's the difference. 2017, you didn't have useful applications. You didn't have users. Now you do. You have credible users, especially if you yeah. look at NFTs and gaming. And that, that always puts pressure on companies that are not growing, right? And invariably, they're going to want to chase different cohorts. The same way as a total tangential, total tangent, I'm sorry here, is Match.com ended up being the first investor in Tinder. Why? Because think about Match.com. It's usually old people that use Match.com, the traditional website. Tinder was used by young people. So why, why, it made sense a lot of them for them to go out, invest in Tinder, and own Tinder because Again, it's a customer acquisition strategy. They want to own the they want to own that relationship over the, over the years, and in a similar way, Mastercard and Visa and, and Shopify and all these folks are are feeling the pressure in their core business, and they need to reinvent themselves. Otherwise, the innovators dilemma is top of mind here, right? Near Foundation just closed a hundred and fifty million dollar funding round. Uh, I know that you are friendly with a lot of the folks who are in it. Uh, Three Arrows, Mechanism Capital, Dragonfly, Andreessen, Jump, Alameda, Amber Group, and others. Uh, can you tell us kind of the inside scoop? What what went on behind the scenes here? Why did this happen? What went? Yeah, so full disclosure, I, I participated in that as well. Um, so we're going to bring Ilya into the show to talk more about it. Um, I think it's uh, look. I, I mentioned in prior episodes. I think uh, and in my predictions for twenty twenty two, Near has one of the best tech out there in my estimation. Uh, it is quite interesting, um, and and I think they just needed a push from a business development standpoint. And so obviously, I think it's sort of mirrored around what other L1s have done, starting with Solana, then Avalanche. And I think Nier just sort of um, is deploying just sort of the same playbook to to attract projects and just raise the profile of the project. I think it's some great builders, uh, but more so in the background. Uh, now, I think it's more of a concerted effort to elevate the profile um, of, of, of the protocol and, and attract other, you know, teams to go out and build, um, on the near ecosystem. So I think that's sort of the intuition behind this round. Let's get into some of the top news. Yeah. Let's do it. Yeah. Cool. First things first, Coinbase, um, big acquisition. Actually, this is kind of an under the radar acquisition. Um, they basically acquired a CFTC regulated derivatives exchange called fair X. Um, fair X, not that popular. I'll say, um, this is, in my mind, a regulatory arbitrage play. The market for crypto derivatives should be absolutely massive, right? When you look at like derivatives versus spot and tra uh, traditional equities, it like it, the derivatives are, are exponentially larger than spot. In crypto, that hasn't 
really happened yet. Uh, and it's really just because of one reason. It's because of the, the regulation is pretty tight on crypto derivatives. So again, I think this is Coinbase saying the market should be huge. Let's push heavy into this space while we can uh, before this entire space unlocks because of regulation. Good take, bad take. What do you think? I think I think that's spot on. And I th- believe that they've done this. Uh, there was another company, Ledger X, I believe that FTX acquired. Right. La- was it Ledger X or was uh, it's a Chicago-based? Yeah, it's Ledger X. Yeah, yeah, exactly. It had a lot of licenses because I remember looking at the seed round. It had a lot of licenses back in the day, and licenses were pretty hard to come by. And so I think yeah. this jump starts uh, and and is as you point out. I mean, we've talked about how uh, you know derivatives should be massive uh, on DeFi. They're not today, but this I think uh, is foreshadowing of that, and, yeah. and, and at least the potential that they see. Yeah, I mean, so I went to try to sell covered calls the other day, and not because you were a degenerate or anything, but sure. No, 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 not at all. But I went to, <laughs> but but also I just wanted to explore, and my you know my dad was asking me how to do it and things like that, and I was like, all right, let me figure it out. And so there's, I was actually astonished by the lack of uh, places to go do that, right? You can use CME group, um, but you need to obviously move in size to do that. And then it's really just kind of like Ledger X, uh, Ledger X, which is now owned by FTX, and, and then Darabit, which I'm not even sure you can use Darabit in the States. As a, as a U.S. citizen? I don't, I don't think you can so. use... No, no, no. Yeah. And it's not like anyone uses VPNs. So. Yeah. No, well, Deribit is, is widely used, but you, you need to have... Uh, you need to be offshore, like just not a, a non-U.S. person. So anyways, I think derivatives market gets absolutely massive. Coinbase pushing yeah, in. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Um, next thing is NFTs. Um, looks rare launched. Um, uh, basically, this is a, a com- kind of an open sea competitor. I think there was uh, massive interest in this yesterday because they're kind of yeah. doing like an airdrop to open sea they're there they airdrop this token called the looks token uh mm-hmm. to anyone i think it was if you had traded over three three ETH, right? ETH on open sea yeah yeah you got you got airdropped um mm. there's a dune analytics chart that i really like if you look at the looks rare versus open sea volume uh the looks rare volume was massive yesterday over 400 million bucks uh and the hourly volume is just uh, mm. one hour is over a hundred million dollars in an hour. That being said, if you look at some of the users, the user data, the open C, yeah. you know, open C has uh, yesterday had 61,000 users looks where I had 3000. Uh, mm. the obvious thought here is that wash trading is maybe a play, right? It looks like it kind of looked like looks where I was destroying open C in terms of hourly volume, but the number of hourly transactions for looks rare was far below open sea. And so mm. unless I'm interpreting this incorrectly, it kind of smells mm. a little bit like wash trading, but I don't know what do you, and then the other argument is, yeah, it was our, it was wash trading, but like, who cares? Why does that even matter? This is just a, this is a, uh, a lot. This is a launch. And right. If you have to trade back and forth a few times to get the token, users come to farm stay because the platform's great. Got to try it to buy it. Brilliant, brilliant launch strategy. Right. Yeah, not the first time a protocol has done fake it till you make it. Uh, that's uh, a lot of a lot of even the the bigger protocols and DeFi more established ones started that way. Uh, it feels more credible, to be fair, than SOS. Um, and so I don't actually don't know who's behind this. I need to look more into it. Uh, but uh, this is certainly a dashboard we should continue to monitor. Like you know, these exact same stats that we just looked at. How are they going to look like next week and the following yeah. week? Yeah. The last thing I think on the NFT side of things is just a big shout out to Royal uh, Blau and, and Justin over at Royal did their first music NFT drop um, with NOS. Uh, if, 
uh, any fans of Nas out there. He just uh, dropped his first music NFTs, Royal. Big shout out to them. Um, the next thing here is there are a couple fun raises. First is Zero Hash raised $105 million to bring crypto products to financial companies. Shout out to Ed Woodford. Really good guy. Um, their thesis is that every company eventually becomes a crypto company in some form. They want to empower that. Two years ago, $105 million raise would have, you know, a lot of eyes on $105 million. Today, it's kind of like under the radar. Again, same with uh, Swiss Digital Asset Bank, Seba. They raised $119 million two years ago. It's a massive amount. Now it's kind of like, up oh, another $119. The big news, the big fundraise of the week, obviously, Sequoia and Paradigm investing $1.15 billion in Citadel. This is the first time Citadel Securities has taken outside capital. There are a lot of ways to interpret the Citadel deal. Um, I want to get your take first, and then I can share what I'm thinking. Yeah, well, a couple of things. Citadel is the one that powers uh, platforms like Robinhood on the back end, which obviously have uh, done uh, pretty interesting for a into crypto, and I think they realize the potential of crypto. And so... You know, to me, I interpret this as Citadel trying to get smarter on crypto and trying to bring in valuable partners that can help them, you know, kind of build an entire business unit uh, uh, in crypto. Uh, and and so that's how I read into the deal. Um, uh, I think Citadel, look, at the end of the day, I mean, you got to understand someone like Sam, for instance, was a Jane Street. And crypto is a very volatile market. That is sort of a trader's wet dream, part of my French. And like, you know, I think... You know, this is just, there's huge opportunity. I mean, probably Kyle and Tushar mentioned this in sort of their thesis on MEV. These markets and the inefficiencies that continue to exist in crypto and as a, volat- as a volatile asset class and relatively underdeveloped with financial infrastructure is massive. I mean, like it's sort of, you're left wondering, like what took these guys so long? Uh, okay, maybe it was some regulatory uncertainty and maybe the industry sort of matured a bit and there's ETFs and there's more clarity. And Okay, I understand that. But I think we're at that point, at that inflection point where people realize, wow, I can build. One, this is not an, a trivial market. Like DeFi has grown substantially over the last two years. And I think anyone and major financial institutions are paying attention. But you cannot not have a strategy at this point on crypto. Yeah. Craziest stat on Citadel is that Ken Griffin owns 85% of Citadel still. Yeah, I think it was Ken that sold his his personal stake. Yeah, I believe. Yeah. Also, Ken Griffin uh, bought Constitution and outbid Constitution Dow. Correct. One of the largest art collectors in the world. Yeah. Uh, here, here, here are a couple other takes that are the non the contrarian takes. One, Ken Griffin said he's still saying fuck crypto. Uh, he goes, I'm going to take these crypto kids' money and uh, and not put it into crypto, and that'll show them. Uh, so that's one take. I don't think that's the right take, though. Uh, the other take is that um, uh, this is paradigm hedging out of crypto, paradigm getting perhaps pessimistic on the market over the next 18 months, wants a little bit of allocation to arguably the best market-making firm ever in the history of the world. They get into Citadel. Uh, another take is that, uh, I, I mean, just it's really, really impressive, imp- impressive that paradigm got in this deal. They obviously got in the deal because... You know, may, I know a lot of people are saying because Citadel wants to get into crypto. The, uh, it's re- important to remember the founder of Paradigm, Matt, came from, uh, I think he was at Sequoia beforehand. He was at Sequoia. I think Sequoia is the largest uh, investor in Robinhood. Yeah, believe. so Sequoia, Sequoia and Citadel are very, very close. Uh, Sequoia got in the deal. Paradigm, uh, Paradigm and Sequoia are very close. Uh, there's either, this is either Sequoia expanding into crypto. 
um, is what a lot of obviously crypto folks on Twitter are saying. This could just be Citadel uh, expanding into VC, right? What a lot of the hedge funds of the last like two years have done is now they're pushing into VC. Uh, even like a lot of the market makers like Jump and uh, other folks like that have pushed very heavily into crypto VC. This could just be crypto, uh, Citadel's expansion into VC and they, they see Paradigm as the best crypto VC and Sequoia as the best traditional VC. I mean, the common denominator here is, and I think we can all agree in CIOI to this, is it's quite positive for crypto. Yeah. Uh, two stories that I thought were just pretty funny. One was on Blockworks and one was on Decrypt, um, another great media site. Shout out Decrypt. Um, the first is JP Morgan said that 2022 could be the year of the blockchain bridge. Uh, <laughs> it's just wild. Like 20, JP Morgan out here predicting bridges. Uh, and the other is that Bank of America said that Solana could beat out Ethereum to become the visa of crypto. Uh, you've got JP Morgan out here talking about bridges and you've got, uh, you've got Bank of America out here talking about Solana. So I don't know, man, I just, things are moving so quickly. I find it hilarious. Um, yeah. Well, the other one, uh, not to mention is Goldman, I think came out with a web three report. Um, yeah, they did last and, week. So, you know, it's that time of year where analysts want to be relevant and make bold predictions. Um, I don't know if these are, um, accurate or not, but it is interesting to at least read about them, even whether you find them comical or not, or just grossly like, like traditional media, not block works always characterizes this industry. Their takes are just like five years old. And like, they continue to use like stock images of like, you know, like, projects that are not even existed like made safe and stuff like this but nonetheless you know i think um you know um there there's more coverage so i mean i, I continue to believe any news for crypto is still positive like and so like uh but yeah you know who had a good take actually tom emmer tom emmer shout out tom emmer congressman from minnesota's sixth district introduced a right, bill yeah. prohibiting the fed from issuing cbdc directly to individuals really really interesting right he's getting on board mm -hmm. what he, what he's basically saying here is if the fed issues a cbdc has direct access into client, uh, consumers bank accounts how do you stop us from becoming china we will inevitably inevitably become china and it is more important as he said than ever to ensure that the us's digital currency policy protects financial privacy maintains the dollar's dominance and cultivates innovation a i love that tom emmer's taken to twitter to share this thing publicly and b i this guy gets it he obviously gets it absolutely yeah no i mean i've been very impressed in, in that uh, as i was uh, watching the uh, uh, Powell's congressional like nomination hearing, there were some pretty interesting takes on stable coins and, um, you know, some smart takes. And it's, it's interesting. Look, I think like it was someone who tweeted about this is, I think it was, um, uh, the founder of Masari mentioned that, uh, as more of these politicians run for office, uh, part of the conversation increasingly so will be, what is your crypto, like, what is your crypto policy and stance on crypto? Um, I think, I think that's, probably going to be a theme more and more so now. And, and it's good to see. I think that the level of discourse has gone up and the quality of it has also gone up. And, and that is both very encouraging. Yeah. All right. Here's the final stat that we're leaving it on. Blockworks tweeted out yesterday. Really interesting stat. The world's most visited finance websites in December. Number one was PayPal. Number two, CoinMarketCap. Number three, TradingView, then Chase, then Investing.com, then Binance.com, beating out Wells Fargo and Bank of America. Right behind Wells Fargo and Bank of America, we have CoinGecko at number nine, jumping down to 15 is Coinbase, jumping down to 17 is OpenSea. Five mm -hmm. of the top 20 
largest finance websites in the entire world, CoinMarketCap, Binance, CoinGecko, Coinbase, and OpenSea. Love to see it. I love to see it. And I will predict that CoinGecko probably flips CoinMarketCap. Um, you know, they just did a huge reskin. So shout out to those guys out there. I think they do an incredible, incredible work. Bobby, Bobby and team have just an incredible, you know, they've never taken any outside money. Unbelievable. Un- I think unbelievable. Bobby was the second ever guest of the show. The second guest ever, ever of Empire. We got to bring him back on. Oh, we got to bring him on back on. We got to bring him back, and uh, you know, we, we got to get some our hands into some of the some of the Coin Gecko equity. <laughs> I'll go. I'll go pump Coin Gecko all day long. If you think that they have not got at least a billion dollar offer to buy that business, you're crazy. Easily. They by have far by far. I mean, how much far. did Binance buy uh, Coin Four hundred million. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, that was at the peak of 2017. We're way far along now. No, that was like oh, yeah. 2019. No, 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 that's right. That was that, that, that right. was after the peak. Yeah, that, that's yeah, right. That's right. That was down so down market. They got four. Oh no, this was March. Oh no, this is the uh, this is when COVID hit. It was March of 2020. They bought them for 400 million. You may be right. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think it was March 2020, which is nuts. They paid 400 million for Coin Market Cap when the market had absolutely shit the bed. Just think about what Coin Gecko's getting these days. A couple billion at least. Shout out to Bobby. Shout out Bobby. Love this. Love the site. <laughs> All right, my friend. Anything else to talk about? I think that's it. If you like the show, share it with a friend. Go post on Twitter. Tag Santiago and me. I promise you I will retweet it if you tag me. So thanks for listening, guys, and we will see you next week. All right, my friend. It was great chatting with you. And as always, we live to see another week in crypto. Always eventful. And we'll be here next week as well. See you next week. All right, my friend. Take care. Thank you, everyone.